Hello again, everyone, and welcome to today's show. If you're one of the 130 million people that are dealing with SIRS, Lyme disease, autoimmune disease, or other conditions that are impacted by mold on a daily basis, and you need to learn how to eliminate that exposure, then you're in the right place. My name is Brian Carr, and you're listening to Mold Finders Radio. Hey guys, so I want to give you a little scenario that I saw in a Facebook group somewhere and then talk about what's happening. (laughs) Um, So there was a thread in here and part of the thread says our in-home air test came back lower than the outside air test, but I've heard that air tests are no good. Could you advise? And we'll talk about that in a second. We've talked about that a little bit, but I'll go back into that some more. And then there was a follow up that where she said there was an inspection found uh, at the same time and they found a fair bit of mold in the bathrooms. Um, Also, I lifted up the carpet in the laundry room basement and the floor is covered. It's strange that air tests don't detect this unless outdoor sources are more prevalent. You know, it's interesting. I I get asked this a lot uh, when people are, are looking at like air results, you know, because we do air testing in houses, but it's not, it's not in the ambient space, right? And and I'll talk about why in a minute, but it's more directed at source. It's trying to figure out where the location is. And uh, that's really where the strength of air testing is. It's finding hidden areas of mold where there isn't visible growth, but there are uh, signs of water damage, which are really the, the big indicators that there could be a hidden mold problem that's hiding somewhere. So basically air samples are good for finding hidden mold. Um, they're terrible for finding what's actually floating around in your house. Uh, and they give you false negatives all the time. So, uh, when the one thing I wanted to get out first before we dive in the air sample stuff is just one simple thing in her statement that I think we just need to talk about real quick. I lifted up the carpet in the laundry room basement and the floor is covered. Okay. We should never have carpet in a basement. Um, a basement is subgrade. It's very similar to crawl spaces. As we all know, I hate basements and crawl spaces. Um, so you're below grade, which means you're below ground. So that means that any moisture that gets into the ground is gravity's working against you at that point, right? Because water's hitting the, the ground and it's going to go down. And down is where the basement and the crawl space is. So you're fighting like these natural forces. And, and basically you have to implement like man-made solutions to try to combat those. But it's constantly fighting these natural forces. Uh, examples of that solution are... Uh, fixing the grating in your house, possibly excavating around your house and creating a French drain system that's going to move water that gets down into the ground away from the home, Uh, implementing sump pumps, working on your waterproofing. There's a lot of things that you need to do to protect the underground of your house, which is what your basement and your crawl space is. So if we know that moisture is just a thing that we're always going to have to be combating and fighting, the last thing we want to do is put carpet on the floor down there because if moisture gets into the ground right uh, under the house and that moisture starts to push upward through hydrostatic pressure then it's going to hit the carpet and it's going to be a moisture barrier and then you're going to get mold that grows all under your carpet and it's super common so uh, i just wanted to point that out you know if you have a basement you definitely don't want to have carpeting down there um, on a side note with carpeting, I was just working on a report for a, a, 
uh, inspection I did like a week ago. And there were multiple rooms in this house where there was carpeting in the bathrooms uh, and also wallpaper in the bathrooms. So I've I've thrown a couple of posts out about this on Instagram. I don't know if I really talked about it, but it's kind of similar concept. It's not that you're fighting nature here at this point, but the environment in a bathroom is a very moist, wet environment. You're taking showers all the time. You're steaming the thing up. Uh, you're stepping out of the shower and water's dripping off of you. And then that's going to drip onto the carpet. That's going to soak under there. You basically have barriers on your walls and your floor that are going to trap moisture. So over time, What's going to happen is that the wallpaper starts peeling. You start getting discoloration in the wallpaper. Next thing you know, you start getting mold growing behind the wallpaper because moisture is getting back there. And then with the carpeting, the same thing. You're stepping out of the shower. You're dripping water on the carpet. It's soaking into the carpet. Underneath your carpet is wood subfloor usually. And then you're you're getting mold that's growing on the subfloor below it. So uh, you're kind of just asking for problems in a really wet environment to have uh, carpeting and wallpaper. So while bathrooms and basements, you're not dealing with the same reason that there's moisture problems. They inherently both have just kind of built in water issues that go on. And so having wallpaper or, uh, or carpeting in either of those spaces, as far as I'm concerned is a big no, no. So that means no wallpaper in the basement either, right? Cause again, if, if moisture is coming through, uh, the walls potentially from drainage is not working properly. And then you put wallpaper directly against the walls, then you're creating a moisture barrier that is going to trap that in. So, you know, then the question is, okay, well, if moisture is coming in and I don't have wallpaper there, that's still a problem. What do I do about it? And you're right. That's totally still a problem. Um, but the, the good thing about not having the wallpaper there is that you still have a little space uh, kind of in the in the uh, in the area in the basement that you could try to deal with it a little bit, right? So here's what happens: so moisture penetrates through uh, the walls of a basement. Uh, it's going to increase the humidity in the basement, and then you're dealing with a humidity issue. So now, when you have elevated humidity, you can start getting you'll get that air that gets trapped down there, and you can start getting mold growing on multiple surfaces throughout the basement. Okay, so. The thing is, if you're having moisture coming through the walls, step one, you have to stop it from coming through, right? There's no Band-Aid fix that's going to continue to, to be a foolproof plan forever. But uh, it's important to have methods in place to combat that, uh, you know, because it, it may happen. And so you need to be on top of it. But the thing is, you know, not all of us are on top of it right away. It might take you months to figure it out or, or even longer than that, potentially. And if that's happening, you want to have some sort of uh, uh, kind of backup solution in place that's going to help manage that. So the, the thing that, that does that is by, if so, if you're in a finished basement, let's say so, or an unfinished basement, basement, I guess, uh, but it's, it's having dehumidification in the basement, right? So there's like multiple components in the basement that need to go on. And I don't know how this just turned into a basement conversation when I was talking about air samples, but I'll get back to it. Um, for the basement, first off, your drainage has to be good, both from the outs, from the sides of the house and under the house. Your waterproofing has to be good, so something needs to be looked at. Second, you don't want uh, wallpaper directly against the walls. You also don't want your drywall built directly against a foundation wall. Right? I've seen this a lot, where you have your like you know your concrete foundation wall and you put drywall straight up against it. That's the same exact thing as putting wallpaper directly against the wall. It's a moisture barrier. You're giving your your building no room to breathe. So as soon as moisture comes in, 
through, which is just going to be like water vapor that comes in through that wall. It's going to hit the drywall directly against the wall. And mold is going to grow behind it. So the same goes for like insulated foam sometimes that goes against uh, uh, basement walls down there. Anything that you're putting directly against a wall like that in a basement, you don't want to do. You want to leave space. Uh, you want to frame off the wall, right? The same way you would frame a house. That way you're putting space uh, in between the wall and in the wall cavity, and there's some room for, for the air to breathe and to move. Um, and then uh, no carpeting on the floor, right? You definitely don't want carpeting, just like what we talked about. And uh, then you want a dehumidif uh, dehumidifier in the basement to help combat any moisture that does come through. That way, if there is some elevated moisture that gets into the space, you're not pumping up the humidity to the point where you're going to get mold growing all over like the ceilings if they're finished or the subfloor if they're not finished. Um, or your contents and your belongings, different things. I've seen this happen where you go into a basement, there's mold growing on everything. It's because the humidity down there is spiking so high, which is ultimately because there's a, a water intrusion problem from your waterproofing, but that's what happens. And then the basement is the true bottom of your house and your airflow in a house typically moves from bottom to top. And I said it before, I'll keep saying it, your house doesn't know that you don't live in the basement. And so it thinks that it's the true bottom of the house. And so it starts pulling that air upward through the house. And then the basement or the crawl space become a major source of what is impacting the living spaces of the house. So it's like this big vicious cycle that happens with the basement and a crawl space. Um, but in terms of uh, where I kind of started on this, carpeting in a basement, let's not do it. Uh, and extending on that a little bit, wallpaper on walls in basement, let's not do it. Uh, drywall directly against concrete foundation wall, let's not do that. Um, and then let's bring in a dehumidifier in the basement and let's have your drainage uh, evaluated by an expert, foundation expert, drainage expert. They need to look at uh, the ground uh, the groundwater, right? What's under the house as well as what is surrounding the house. So those are some things with basements. Not that I went off on that major tangent. Um, let me get back to this post, which is where I was starting from. This happens to me sometimes, right? I, I just, you guys notice I'm like, all right, we're going to talk about this. And then like 10 minutes goes by and I haven't even talked about it yet. Um, so where are we at? Yeah, that's where we are about 10 minutes. All right. So, uh, we're back to this, this post here. We're talking about air samples. Um, Basically, they were saying they had an air test in a home that looked good, but they found mold in their basement. So let's talk about air samples again. All right. So air samples are like the biggest false sense of security ever when it comes to mold issues. And it's because taking an air sample in the middle of a room, and let's be clear about this. We're talking about ambient air samples. That means putting up an air sampling pump in the middle of a room, not close to anything, and taking an air sample for five minutes and thinking that that's going to show you everything that's going on. Uh, I know theoretically it kind of makes sense, right? Like if we're just thinking about it, oh, let's see what's floating around. Uh, but it, it just doesn't in practice. It doesn't work that way. And it's, this is from taking thousands and thousands of air samples. So, um, you know, this, this, is, this is from knowing. This is from seeing it happen. This isn't like uh, theory or reading research papers. This is me literally taking a bajillion air samples and looking at them all the time. So that's what this, that, that's where this is coming from. All right. Um, so they asked why it doesn't happen. So let's, let's look at this. So I wrote an article a couple years ago, um, that was three ways that mold air samples are lying to you. Uh, it is on, uh, the yes, we website. 
Uh, I literally just searched three ways mold lie and it popped up. It's the first thing that popped up. So if you're interested in reading this whole article, it's here. Um, I'm going to summarize this for you a little bit. So here's three reasons that mold air samples lie to you. All right. The first one is that, you know, ambient air samples are just a snapshot in time. That's all it is. So you're running an air test for five minutes. Some people do them for 10. Uh, most people do them for five. Uh, I do them for five. And you're seeing what happens to be floating around during the course of five minutes, right? So, you know, we know that the air changes throughout the house, right? We know that, that air conditions change, you know? Um, just think about like being outside, how if the wind blows, you're going to have a whole different gust of air that comes by you than was there previously. Well, wind blows in your house too. It just doesn't blow as hard. Um, this is why there are times where you'll notice maybe a door might like slam shut by itself somewhere. Usually when you turn on your air conditioner or if you have other windows open, you'll see this happening. And it's because there's an air pressure, uh, uh, change going on in the house and there's basically wind blowing in your house. It's just not as hard as it would be outside. And it's what's slamming the door shut uh, when, you, when you do that, when your air conditioner turns on or when you have windows open and you try to shut a door. So you have constant change in air consistently. I know we can't see it and we're not seeing like things blowing back and forth. And that's what makes this stuff really hard to wrap our head around sometime. But the reality is if you're standing... Uh, in the middle of your room, just think that while you're standing there, you have air just blowing around you all the time. It's not stagnant. It doesn't just stay there. It's going to move. And because of that, it's like you're, it's like you're, you're fishing and you put your hook in the water, but you're in a boat that's moving. Right. And you're trying to catch this fish that's down there, but you're moving away from it. And then you're like, oh, well, maybe there's another fish I'm going to grab. And then the boat's moving and then the hook misses it. And then there's no way to get that fish again because you drove by that fish. And then your boat keeps moving. Your hook keeps going by all these fish, but it can't hook any of them because it needs some time. <laughs> right. It needs some time to do that. And and there's movement. And so it's not happening. And that's uh a little, I don't know if that analogy worked. I literally just made it up, but it's, it's just kind of a way to explain that you have this constant movement around you. It's like this invisible movement that's going on in the house and you're not going to be able to grab everything that's happening in five minutes. Now think of it this way. If you're in a room that hasn't really been occupied for a period of time, and I'm not talking like months and years, I'm talking, you haven't been in there like in an hour or something, right? You haven't walked around, you haven't sat down on anything, you haven't opened a door, you haven't done any of that stuff, then the airflow is going to be a little less than it would be if you had human activity in the room. So there are studies out there that study what's called the human cloud effect. And basically what it says is that as we as people move throughout our homes, we create a human cloud. Remember that uh, character in Charlie Brown, Peanut, or uh, not Peanuts, um, uh, Oh, what's his name? Pigpen. Yeah, that's his name. Pigpen. The little kid that just had like a cloud of dirt around him all the time. So that actually happens to us when we walk through our house. It's just not dirt and you just can't see it. But every time we move, we're creating a cloud of particles that are popping up all around us all the time. And and that's what's called the human cloud effect. And that's why you get this constant resuspension of, of things that have settled on the ground that pop up into the air all the time. So when you do an air sample, you're getting a snapshot in time. You're missing out really, you know, kind of on that human cloud effect that follows you around everywhere. And even if you do, you're farther away from a source of where a potential problem is going to be anyway. Um, so 
so that's the first reason is that you're kind of you're you're getting just the split second view of what's going on and it gets misleading when you're doing that you know it's it's like you look at something for a second then you look away and you think you know everything that's happening there when you when you don't know anything that's happening there right unless you have a photographic memory uh and it's kind of the same idea so that's the first reason the second reason is that air samples they only look for spores so We've all heard of a mold spore probably if we're listening to this podcast, right? And so here's the basic idea. So mold is growing, it creates a spore. The spore gets released off of the colony and then it, it, it basically, uh, in, in a way to grow, right? So the spore is like a seed and then it, it hopefully lands somewhere else that has conditions that are suitable for it to grow and that's how it, gro- and that's how it spreads. So it's like its reproductive path. Um, when mold stops growing, it stops producing spores. So there's a couple things with this. One, I've talked many, many times that historical mold growth that is not currently growing, that is dry, is a very big problem. Well, if you have a mold colony that's stopped growing currently because the moisture, the water conditions have, have changed, that means it's not creating spores at the time. That means they're not sending them out into the air as easily. And so you're going to have less of a spore load that's moving around in the air because it's not creating as many. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is uh you know spores are are just kind of one piece of the equation that we're looking for at all right so we're talking about like are they getting made are they not getting made the reality is that spores themselves are really not the big concern about what's going on so there's been multiple studies to talk about fragmentation that breaks off of mold colonies and how the fragments that break off of the colonies can be anywhere from two to five hundred times the amount of spores that would have been produced all right. So let's say that you had a space that had uh, a, a thousand spores that were found. Right. Which is elevated. It's it's not normal to find a thousand spores somewhere. Um, well, the fragmentation that breaks off of that could be 500 times that. So it's 500 times a thousand. It's 500,000. Right. So you have a thousand versus 500,000. Now think if you had some testing done and you find a place that might have like 10,000 spores or might have even more than that, or maybe it's, you know, 6,000 or 8,000 or whatever, multiply that times 500 and that's your potential fragment load that's moving around the house. So if you're looking at one 500th of the picture, which is what looking at mold spores only is doing, I don't even know what that percentage is. Let's see. Let's see if I can figure it out real quick. 1%, 1 of 100 is 1%. Divide that by 5. So 0.2%, how do you like that? 0.2% of, of your um, mold fragment exposure, your total mold exposure, 0.2% of that is mold spores. All right? So does that help? Does that help like kind of put it together? That means the other 99.8% of what you're being exposed to just in terms of the mole colonies, we're not even talking about toxins and stuff. We're just talking about the mole colonies themselves. That is not being picked up in an air sample. I like that. That's a good number. I'm going to start using that number. If you guys like that, tell me. I like that. So again, 0.2% of your potential exposure in the house from a mole colony is actually uh, represented by the spore. 99.8% of that is not represented by a spore and is not detected in an air sample. Okay. So hopefully those numbers really help you show the difference in air samples and why we can't look at them to understand exposure. Like what, what are we breathing? What's floating around? It's such a small piece of what we're actually potentially being exposed to. And again, we didn't even talk about toxins yet, right? We're just talking about 
the mole colonies and their byproduct or, or in their um, not their byproducts, the, the mole colonies and kind of the pieces of the colony that are breaking off. So the mycotoxins are a byproduct of that. Um, maybe I'll talk about that in a second. So uh, then here's the last piece of it. So air samples, they can be easily misread. And the reason is that they're being analyzed by a human that is counting spore. Literally picture this. So you have a person in a room. They're wearing their white coat and they got their cool goggles on. And in today's time, they're probably wearing a mask and they're, you know, all that's happening too. And uh, they're sitting there and they get this little slide that comes in. So the slide is inside of the air sampling uh, media cassette. So when you take an air sample, you put it on an air pump, it sucks air into uh, this little round cassette thing. That thing has a slide in it. So if you, if you remember being in school and you would take like a little slide out and look at it under a microscope, it's the same thing, right? So they take that slide out, they look at it under a microscope, then you literally have a person that is counting the number of spores that they see. That is the depth of analysis that's happening here. And we all know that human error is a real thing. And so, you know, are they counting all of them? Are they missing any of them? Here's the other thing is that air samples don't just pick up mold. They pick up all kinds of stuff that's floating around. They pick up pollen. They pick up uh, insect fragments. They pick up skin fragments. They pick up hair. They pick up, if you're doing samples in wall cavities, they pick up pieces of the drywall dust that's floating around. They pick up pieces of the insulation that's back there, the dirt that's back there. All this stuff gets pulled into an air sample. And so you've got this lab technician that's looking at this cassette and they're looking at it under their microscope. And in addition to mold spores, they got like 10 other things that are on there and they're trying to count just the spores out of it. Now, it's gotta be hard, right? Like, and it's not knocking any anything that they're doing or not doing, I mean, I don't know enough to be a lab technician and understand what I'm looking at. But here's the thing is that I do know that when you have multiple influences that are getting in the way of what you're trying to do, that it can cause a problem. And then I also know we as just people, we kind of mess stuff up. It's just kind of what we do sometimes. And so we're relying on this like human activity of somebody physically counting stuff and we're putting all of our eggs into that basket when we think back a second and say oh man i mean this is only counting this is only really like 0.2 percent of our problem anyway and we're we're using that and tying that then to a process that's 100 percent driven by human which there is going to be human error on that we're putting all this together and we're putting all of our faith into that and it's hard. This is why air samples give you false negatives all the time. And so here's the last thing on air, on air sampling. I, for a year, I wanted to show everything that I just talked about, right? So I know I, just, I said earlier, I've done thousands of these samples. I know that when you take an air sample in the middle of a room, that it's not really accurate, but it's not really published anywhere in the way that I wanted to say it. So I did my own study on it myself and for a year we kind of picked out select houses that we were out and we did uh air sampling ambient air sampling um you know three to five feet away from where we knew a source was going to be so you know there are times when i'm looking at something i feel pretty confident that i'm going to be right that there's going to be a source there now uh i i did a uh I look back at our stats on this too. 75% of the time I'm right. 25% of the time it ends up not being an issue. I feel like those are pretty good odds. Um, 
uh, if I was a baseball player, I'd be the best baseball player on earth if I was batting 7,500. Um, so that's what it is. So 75% of the time, I, whenever I see something, I think that there's a hidden mold problem, it's right. So what I was doing is I was uh, wanting to kind of show this. So I took an, an ambient air sample three, four, five feet away from a space that I thought that there was going to be a mold problem, which 75% of the time there was. So in the times where there was actually a hidden mold problem, the air sample that I took a few feet away 80% of the time, that air sample came back with a negative, with, with, a, uh, with a false negative, meaning that the results said everything was normal. So you have a source that's hidden, you know, three, four feet away. There's actual mold growth that's happening behind a wall or in a cabinet or something. And I take an air sample three, four feet away, and that sample comes back and says there's no problem at all. Okay. These are all the challenges with air samples, right? They're a snapshot in time. They're only a very small piece of the overall equation of what we need to be looking for anyway. There's human error, right? All of that stuff is problems with air samples. And that's why you can't really rely on air samples in this way. And so I get back to this Facebook post that I saw here in one of the uh, mold Facebook groups. And it says, hey, our air test came back lower than the outside, but I heard air tests are no good. Can you advise? So here's why they're no good. So you got that. And, and then the follow-up was talking about the basement and things. And so we talked about that and she says, you know, it's strange that air tests don't detect this unless the outdoor sources are more prevalent. So she's talking about the carpet in her basement that we talked about earlier. Now we know why air tests aren't detecting it, right? It's not that the outdoor sources are more prevalent. That's not what it is. It's not like your comparison point is so bad outside that it's making everything inside look good. That's not what it is. It's that your air samples are just not meant to be used in that way. All right. So here's the last piece of this and then we'll wrap it up. So what do you do to figure out what you're being exposed to, right? Like, oh, oh man, I dropped you guys. Sorry. Um, all right. So what do we do? So we know we're not going to do air samples to figure out what we're being exposed to. Air samples, though, are great for figuring out where the source is located. So the closer you are to the problem, the more accurate they're going to be. This is why we go into walls. We go into cabinets. We go into ceilings where there's water damage, there's discoloration, there's buckling, there's bubbling, there's painting or there's chipping paint, all this stuff, right? This is where we're looking for the hidden sources. This is where our sampling is great because most of the time you can't see mold. It's hidden. And so we got to figure out a way to find it. Figuring out the way to find it is not just, hey, let's just rip the whole house open and see what we find. We want to be strategic about it. And so that's why we do the testing in these different places. So that's where the air testing should be used. But in terms of like what's floating around in your air and what you're being exposed to, well, remember when I talked about pig pen and the human cloud effect and how stuff just gets popped up in your breathing zone all the time as you're walking around? Gravity then pulls it back down on the surface. Then as you walk around, it pops back up in the air and then gravity pulls it back down on the surface. And then tied into that, you have like this internal wind that's happening that we talked about, right? This is why doors slam shut on their own in your house. And so you have air movement going throughout the house at all times. And then as you're walking around, you're popping stuff up in your, in your breathing zone. All these particles are moving all over the place. An air sample can't find them, but guess what can find them? <laughs> the Ermi sample can find them. And... It's the reason it can find them is because of the analysis that is used. So we talked about um, how an air sample is analyzed. Let's talk about how an ERMI sample is analyzed and how different it is and why it's more accurate because of that. So it's it's not counted by a person. Okay. So first off, the collection for an ERMI is a dust collection. So you're not so just from collection perspective, and then we'll go through the whole process. You're not. Um, you're not getting a snapshot in time like you are with an air sample. An air sample's up in the air. It's floating around. Whatever's floating there, you're going to grab. 
an ermi test you're doing dust collection dust is settled on surfaces so you're getting you're getting settlement that means that gravity has pulled it down to the surfaces that means that it's probably been there for a longer period of time you're getting a more historic view of what's gone on so that's the first uh reason that we look at that instead and so that's that's just sheerly how it's collected and where you're getting the information from that you're even sending to the lab so the information gathering point is better then we look about how it's analyzed. So we talked about how air samples are looked at under a microscope. Well, ERMI tests are actually analyzed using uh, a f it's DNA formatting. The technical term is called mold-specific polymerase chain reaction, MSQPCR. That's the scientific term. It's basically DNA formatting. So what happens is that they take your dust that you send them, and then they run it through a machine. Um, and I don't know the specifics of the machine. Uh, so... You know, there's only so far I know about what's happening in the lab. I've done lab tours. I've seen their setups. I've talked to them about their processes, how they prevent cross-contaminating, all that stuff. But there's there's definitely a cutoff to where, like, the lab geniuses are doing their thing. However, there are machines where you put these samples into, and the machine processes the sample. It takes the human element out of it, right? There's not a person counting stuff now. The machine is processing it and then running it through... A, an, an analysis process and then that's what's bringing out the data that's shown on the sample so now you're not getting uh you're not getting the human error piece now right the, the human error piece is really going to be on the collection side at that point and we didn't talk about that but there's human error on the collection side and there's potential human error on the analysis side so when you're looking at air samples you got two sides for human error uh, if the inspector collects the sample wrong then that's a problem and then if the lab miscounts it then that's a problem right on the ermi side uh, there's technically human error on both sides. Uh, the collector side, the human error is a lot less. Basically, um, real quickly, you can't, if you collect drywall on the sample, it's going to mess up the sample. It's not going to be read properly. It's called an inhibitor. It's going to ruin up the chemical process in the analysis. Uh, the same goes for rust. Uh, you don't want to get rust in there either. And you really want to try to avoid like a lot of wood shavings and chips too. So those are kind of the things on the collection front. But it's a lot easier to do that. You just kind of avoid spaces like that so it's easier to do that so anyways on the analysis side there really isn't a human error issue on that point right so the sample goes in the analysis there's kind of like this um this chemical agent that goes into the machine and creates uh the the reading and the analysis on how it does its thing and then the numbers come out right so you're eliminating a lot of the human error you're eliminating a lot of the snapshot in time piece because you're getting uh um you're getting dust to settle on surfaces, and that's where the fragments go. Um, you're actually addressing for all the mold fragments. So we talked about the 0.2% of uh, issue that an air sample picks up. Well, you're getting the other 99.8% because you're not just looking for spores. You're looking for any piece of a mold structure that has that DNA signature. You're getting all of it, right? And that's what we're being exposed to. Uh, that's the majority of what we're being exposed to anyway. So you're getting all of that too. So this is why using, you know, a lot of us here, oh, we got to do ERMI, air samples suck. We don't know why, right? These are all the reasons why. This is why air samples suck. This is why using the ERMI is better, right? And uh, hopefully that helps you figure it out. Now, you do need to use air samples when you're looking for source. Like I said before, you can't do dust testing to figure out where hidden problems are located. It's just showing you what's, what's moving through the house. So it's showing you your exposure. It's showing you the byproduct of, of the colonies that are there and what's getting into the space. Um, but it's not showing you where it's coming from. That's why it's so important to have a really good inspection then also have a sampling plan that uses a combination of different sampling methods that's going to... 
show the whole picture of the house. Think of your house like a puzzle, right? You got to put the whole puzzle together. The Ermi is like the middle of the puzzle, you know, where you start seeing like the actual images that were on the puzzle, but none of that makes any sense unless you have all the edges of the puzzle put together. And that's usually where a lot of us start, right? When you get a puzzle, you're like, oh, I got to start, I got to find the corners, start there. That's the foundation. The foundation of a home assessment is where's the problem coming from? The foundation is the inspection. Okay. So you have to do that first. You have to figure out where the sources are. And then you start putting together the middle of the puzzle. And that comes from doing the ERMI, mycotoxin testing, actinomycetes, endotoxins, all the other stuff that we're concerned about in the house. So ah, that's a lot. Um, all right, guys, we're going to end it there for today. I hope you guys found this helpful. I have a feeling this is going to be like the episode for understanding air sampling and understanding ERMI sampling and the comparison. And if you guys think that, and if you're ever seeing people that are asking the question or why do, why do air samples suck and why are, are, why should I be doing ERMI and what's the benefit and what's the not point them to this episode? Because, um, I have a feeling that this is just going to be one of those episodes that I'm going to refer back to a lot with my clients. And so, um, you know, bookmark it, save it. Uh, cause I, you know, you might want to refer back to it yourself as well. So that's it for today's show, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and subscribe and give a rating wherever you get your podcasts. It'll help spread the word to those who really need it the most. 